0: We can be here today to fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ. As we read your word today, please open our hearts and minds so that we may understand and put into action what we have learnt. Amen. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away and their skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion, Zion. and the streams of Edom shall, shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulphur. Her land shall become, shall become burning pitch, Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. Chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning, shall, the burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the Way of Holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way, even if they are fools. They shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everyone. So today, uh, I think I have a mic here already. Okay. So, uh, yeah, today I'm continuing uh, my sermon series on Isaiah. We've been through Isaiah... uh, quite a few chapters now, and today we get to chapters 34 and 35. Now, we, we all uh, live in a world in which the idea of judgment or punishment is most unpalatable in society. So you can be forgiven for thinking that the justice system, at least in this country, sides with criminals more than victims. Sometimes the focus is more on reforming the wrongdoer than on justice for the victim. And we often see or read in the news that serious crimes get relatively light sentences and a few years later they're back on the streets on parole. Now people uh, find it especially offensive to speak of God bringing judgment. You know, hell is a taboo topic in our society today. And people just want to enjoy themselves, live life their own way, and God is there just to you know, help them out of sticky situations. Otherwise, they expect God to just stay in his own lane and don't bother us. But then they also think that when they die, somehow they should go up to heaven, whatever heaven is in their minds. Because, you know, they're generally okay people. They're not murderers. They just try to be nice and polite. And, you know, hell is for really, really bad people, but definitely not for me and ordinary people like me, they would think. Now Isaiah in today's passage is not shy to talk about God's judgment and it's very, very different in the Bible when we read about judgment as opposed to what we think judgment is like in society today. Uh, Do I have a um, control thing? Sorry. Thank you. So yeah, um, Isaiah trumpets... um, Judgment with the most forceful, the most vivid language imaginable, and we just read it. So, in verse 1, uh, Isaiah says, Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. In verse 2, Isaiah speaks of the Lord being enraged. God is furious with all the nations. Now, when we see rage and fury in people around us, like, you know, when you're driving and you see road rage, most of the time it's ugly, it's selfish, and it's wrong. But when we see God having rage and fury, it is completely righteous. It is right for God to be angry. In fact, He would be unrighteous if He wasn't angry. Why? Because God's holiness demands that sin cannot go unpunished. It cannot be ignored. There would be no justice if God were to turn a blind eye to sin. Now, if a murderer got away scot-free, that would be wrong. That is injustice. And so God is justly angry with sinners and must punish sin. The trouble is that all of us are sinners. Every person in the world is a sinner. So God is enraged against all the nations, every single person. It says here, he has devoted them for destruction. Now, that is uh, an English translation of a Hebrew word called kerem. Now, this word in the Old Testament referred to things which were devoted or set aside exclusively for God by utterly destroying them. So, whether they were people or animals or possessions, for example, uh, in the conquest of Canaan, the people of Canaan were subject to cherem, which, in other words, God commanded that they be utterly destroyed. And here Isaiah is saying that the people of the world are subject to this uh, sentence. They are all to be devoted to utter destruction and slaughtered. Verse 3. Their slain shall be cast out. So here, the picture is of you know, piles of dead bodies strewn as far as the eye can see, the stench of rotting corpses assaulting the senses, blood flowing down the mountains. And verse 4, even the heavens are not spared. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll and all their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. Now, what seems to us so fixed and permanent that is the vast expanse of the heavenly bodies the sun the moon the stars they will roll up like a scroll and fall like a leaf from a tree now whether this is literal or figurative language i don't know but what it seems to be saying is there's some there's going to be some cataclysmic change to creation to the whole universe at the time of god's judgment verse 5 Okay, Isaiah here pictures God as a warrior with a mighty sword. So to mix metaphors here, God's sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Presumably that means that God's judgment has started in heaven with the heavenly beings, the fallen angels, and many of them have been judged. And now God's sword is coming down to earth. And he comes down to the nation of Edom and its capital, Bozrah. Now, why pick on Edom? Here, Edom is used as an archetype of the enemy of God and his people. Now, when we looked previously at chapter 25, we found the same thing was done with the nation of Moab. That was also used as a representation of everybody opposed to God. Edom and Moab were both neighbouring nations to the east, to the east of uh, the Jordan. Okay, so both nations were actually related to Israel. So here's Moab and here's Edom. The Moab was actually a son of Lot, that's Abraham's nephew, and Edom was descended from Esau, Jacob's brother. But both nations opposed Israel and sided with Israel's enemies during wartime. That caused many Israelites to be massacred. What will God do to Edom? What will God do to all who oppose him and his people? Verse 5. I keep pointing it the wrong way. Okay, so verse 5 says that they are devoted to destruction. And again, graphic imagery. God's sword, verse 6, will be sated with their blood and fat. There will be a great sacrifice, a massacre. And verse 7 The land will drink up the blood and be gorged with the fat of the victims. Verse 8. We'll move on to the next. Yeah. All of this will happen on the day of God's vengeance in the year of his recompense. God's vengeance is for the cause of Zion. That is, God's vengeance is to avenge the wrong that has been done to his people. Verse 9. The fierceness of God's judgment is further emphasized by the picture of the land of Edom being, be, becoming burning pitch and sulfur. The streams of Edom would turn into streams of, so to speak, molten lava. The whole land would burn and burn and never be quenched. Notice in verse 10, thank you, how much emphasis there is on the forever nature of this punishment. So there's four time Indicators. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. Thanks. Okay, thanks. Now, what Isaiah says here is something that should make us all fear. Because those who oppose God will suffer brutal destruction. They're going to be slaughtered they'll be subject to God's ferocious and never-ending judgment. And this same theme is picked up in the New Testament and in the book of Revelation actually echoes the same language that Isaiah uses here. So in Revelation chapter 14, I'll just read it. uh, Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulphur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. What Isaiah is talking about and what Revelation is talking about is the Christian doctrine of hell. Now It's something that some churches shy away from talking about. It's not comfortable to talk about it, but as we can see today, it's plainly in the Bible, and we need to talk about it. Hell is a state of eternal conscious punishment for sin. And Jesus warns repeatedly that it is a place you need to avoid at all costs. The Bible uses very fearsome imagery to describe it. So hell is depicted as a place of fire, a place of outer darkness, a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. These are all words of Jesus. A place where there's perpetual unquenched thirst, a state of eternal death and perishing and destruction, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, Jonathan Edwards was a pastor, preacher, and theologian in the Great Awakening in North America in the 1700s, perhaps the greatest theologian that America has ever produced. And in 1741, he preached his most famous sermon, arguably the most famous sermon in American history, called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, you can Google it and read it if you're interested. Here's an excerpt from his sermon, Basically, in the sermon, Jonathan Edwards is saying to unconverted sinners, you are in grave, grave danger of falling into hell at any moment. It's like you are suspended over the pit of hell by a slender thread. And hell is ready to receive you into its flames at any moment. And the only thing that's stopping you from dropping into hell immediately is that your appointed time is not yet come. But it could come at any moment because you are already objects of God's wrath and fury and under his sentence of condemnation. Now, if you have no mediator, Edward said, if you do not have Jesus Christ to save you from this dreadful predicament, you are eternally damned. Life is fragile. You know, almost one month ago, on the 6th of February, just after 4 a.m. in the morning, More than 53,000 people in Turkey and Syria just went to bed the night before, never expecting anything unusual to happen, just like we went to bed last night, and they were crushed by their houses collapsing on top of them as they slept from an earthquake that measured 7.8 on the Richter scale. Some died immediately, others died in the days to come, in the... Life is unpredictable. Death can come at any moment. Now why them? Why did all these masses of innocent men and women and children die such violent deaths? Well, Jesus had something to say about such events. In Luke, Jesus... um, worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now what should we make of the deaths of the innocent? Throughout history, people have suffered and been killed both by moral and natural evil. So moral evil is perpetrated by intentional evil actions done by people such as Pilate killing Galileans and mixing their blood with their sacrifices. And natural evil is some adverse condition in the world, not controlled by human choices. For example, natural disasters like earthquakes, accidents, illness, disabilities, physical hardship. For example, the tower that collapsed on the people in Siloam in Jerusalem. So in Luke 13, Jesus addresses both these types of evil... But he doesn't actually focus on the fact that these people who were killed were innocent and did not deserve to die that particular death. Instead, Jesus focuses on the fact that all people are guilty as sinners before an angry God. All people are not innocent but are deserving of death. All people are appointed to die once and then face God's judgment. It doesn't matter how you die or when you die. It may sound callous, but Jesus says the cold, hard truth is everyone who dies deserves to die because they have sinned against the Holy God. And the 53,000 people in Turkey and Syria did not deserve to die more than we deserve to die. But we all and they all deserve death whether it's a violent death from being crushed to death in Turkey, from being bombed to death in Ukraine, or a natural death from a heart attack or cancer. Jesus says the deaths of others should serve as a loudspeaker warning to us all. Repent, or we will likewise perish. It will happen eventually. If you are here today, and you do not have personal trust in the Lord Jesus, know that all of us, including you, have sinned and stand under God's condemnation. You are at any moment liable for hellfire. If you do not believe Jesus is the Savior and you have not accepted Him as Lord over your life, I urge you to turn away from your sin, repent, and put your faith in Jesus today. He's the only way that you can be saved from everlasting judgment. If you want to hear more about it, come and speak to me or anyone here today. Now, thank God that Isaiah's message did not end here, with God's judgment. The second half of his message continues into chapter 35. Everlasting joy for God's redeemed. Verse 1, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. In chapter 34, God's judgment results in Edom, a cultivated and fruitful land, being turned into a burning wasteland, a wilderness. In chapter 35, God's mercy Uh, has a plan for restoration. So in verse 1, it says that the wilderness, the dry desert, will rejoice. It will blossom, it will bloom abundantly. It will be covered with glory and transformed into something like the beautiful forest of Lebanon, famous for its cedar trees, and like Mount Carmel with the rich green plain of Sharon lying at its foot. Now this transformation reminds me of Lake Ilden, you know, 15 years ago, there were terrible droughts, and uh, the picture on the left here was taken in 2007, uh, 15 years ago. But now, on the right, it's completely full, and it's unrecognizable from what it was 15 years ago Lake Eldon. And that is exactly the picture that Isaiah uses in verse 6 and verse 7. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. God will utterly transform the wilderness of punishment and the desert of despair into joyful and glorious abundance. It's going to be unrecognizable. The wilderness will see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Now, in some sense, we are now living in the wilderness. Life today is bewildering and uncertain. As has been alluded to, the goalposts keep moving. Things that were plainly accepted as facts 10 years ago are now verboten and not allowed to be said in public discourse. Stating the obvious facts of life is now considered hate speech. And those of us who have young kids struggle to know how to help our children navigate these times, how to bring them up in a world which wants to sexualize and indoctrinate them. Now, we see society and we see government increasingly becoming illiberal and intolerant towards Christian beliefs. Only this week we heard of a comedian called Reuben Kay, who went on the project on ABC TV at the time when families usually watch TV and cracked an obscene sexual joke about Jesus. In short, we live in a world filled with sin, a world under God's judgment, a wilderness in Isaiah's language. But we have good news we have a certain hope. There will come a time when the wilderness will be transformed into a garden of Eden. There will come a world in which despair is replaced by rejoicing. It's going to happen when the glory of the Lord is revealed. So what then should be our response? In light of our great and certain hope, our response should be verse 3 strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. It's easy to look at our world, to look at all the problems all around us and forget that God is in control. We should not cower in fear. If you are anxious about the state of the world today, listen, you're in fact blessed far above those whom you fear. While they stand under God's wrath, while they are at any minute liable to be devoured by hell, you have God on your side. He's coming with vengeance against all who oppose and ignore Him. He's coming to avenge you and save you And God doesn't need anyone to defend him from mockers and sinners. He can fend for himself perfectly fine. So don't let the ungodly unsettle you. Those who stand against God may take away your liberty, they may take away your livelihood, they may even take away your life, but do not let them take away your joy, your confidence, your rest in God. So when will this take place? When will the glory of the Lord come to transform the wilderness into a lush garden? Verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So we are told that when God comes to save, the blind shall see, the deaf shall hear, the lame shall leap, and the mute shall sing. Well, that is exactly what happened when Jesus came. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11. When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John the Baptist was, this is fast forward, you know, 600 years from Isaiah's time. John the Baptist was beginning to doubt whether Jesus was truly God's Messiah. His idea of a Messiah was God's vengeance. The Messiah would swiftly bring God's judgment on sinners but he was hearing that Jesus was doing nothing of the kind. Jesus was going around healing people, preaching good news of salvation. So could Jesus really be the Messiah? Well, Jesus had to remind John of Isaiah 35, which promises both vengeance and salvation. When God comes, he's going to come to save and heal and restore as well as to bring vengeance. Now, we now know that God's coming is in two stages. The first coming of Christ, 2,000 years ago, was to bring salvation and reconciliation with God. But the second coming of Christ in the future is to bring God's vengeance and judgment. So Jesus is basically telling John, my deeds speak for themselves. Isaiah 35 is being fulfilled right before your eyes. I am indeed the Messiah. And these Works of Jesus are a foretaste of God's complete restoration of creation to come. But there will be no more sickness and no more death. Now, when God comes to save and judge, He will bring about a final separation between those who are under everlasting judgment and those who have everlasting joy. Verse 8. In God's transformed paradise, there's going to be a highway reserved only for those who walk in the way of holiness. No unclean person shall be allowed on it. Only God's redeemed have the right to be on this highway. Now verse 10 seems to indicate that this highway leads to Zion, the city of God. So the highway is an image or a picture of the way to heaven, the way of salvation. And even the simplest of God's people, those who are comparatively fools, will not go astray on it. God will lead them unerringly to Zion. Verse nine: "No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk on it, shall walk there. So there will be no more danger, there's no more cause for anxiety in that heavenly land. It's a place of perfect safety. And God's protection will be upon all of His redeemed. Verse 10. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sign shall flee away. Now, I love these words. They express such a Beautiful picture of what God has in store for us god 's people are called the ransomed of the Lord, and that 's because He took a ransom. It took the blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus, to pay the penalty for our sin and to rescue us from sin's bondage and power over us. Jesus died so that we could be saved from the fierce wrath of God, spoken of in chapter thirty four and turn us from God's enemies into God's children. And we will return to where we truly belong. Zion, the heavenly city, with everlasting joy upon our heads, with singing and gladness and joy. There's going to be no more sorrow, no more sighing, no more anxiety. All that will flee away, never to darken our lives again. So today's passage has a very simple message, that is there are only two ways, there are only two ways that God deals with us, vengeance or salvation, and there are only two trajectories in this life, the highway to hell or the highway to Zion. And there are only two destinies, everlasting judgment or everlasting joy. Life in today's world often clouds our vision of uh, these twin realities. We do get distracted, we forget, and so we are paralysed by fear. We lose sight of the true spiritual realities and buy into the lie of this world. The world says, kowtow to me, agree with me, follow me, or I will make your life a living hell. But guess what? the comedians of this world, the Daniel Andrews of this world, the Albanese's and the Xi Jinping's and Putin's of this world, one day will bend the knee to Jesus and confess that he is Lord. Now, if you've ever read the Narnia books by C.S. Lewis, you might remember that at the start of this book called The Silver Chair, uh, Aslan and the girl Jill are on a high mountain. So Aslan gives Jill four instructions to accomplish the task that he's sending her to Narnia for. And he makes her repeat these instructions again and again until she can remember them. And then he says this. This is an excerpt. Aslan is speaking. Here on the mountain, I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. And the signs which you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look when you meet them there. That is why it's so important to know them by heart and pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. Now that is a great picture of the fog that we live in in this world today. We shouldn't pay any attention to what seems to be reality We shouldn't pay attention to appearances. What we see and experience in our world is not the true reality. The true reality is found in God's word, which is what we heard today. Judgment and salvation. So hang on to the reality and the certainty of what God's word says, that there is going to be everlasting judgment for sinners, everlasting joy for the redeemed. There's going to be more bad news to come. We'll no doubt hear of more legislation criminalizing Christian beliefs and restricting Christian institutions. We'll see society increasingly normalizing and glorifying perversions of all kinds. How should we live? Well, we should stand firm in the realities of God's truth. Do not deny your faith when you are under attack. Stay on God's side. Do not bend. Do not give an inch when the society and the state put pressure on you to conform. Do not be anxious or dismayed, but rest in God's sovereign control. Rejoice greatly that you are chosen to bear the name of Christ. Be confident, be bold, and courageous. Be ready to speak of your faith to all who want to know and do not live for the here and now do not get bogged down in the fleeting attractions of this world in the cares and anxieties of this world but live now for what is of eternal value because god will ultimately win the day and blessed is the one who endures to the very end let's pray Heavenly Father, we know that the kings of the earth rage and plot and take counsel together against you and against your anointed. But you sit enthroned in heaven and laugh them to scorn and you terrify them in your wrath. We have heard today of the judgment, the anger, the wrath that you will pour out on all the nations and peoples of this world. Teach us to fear you, teach us to number our days aright with wisdom. And thank you so much for the lesson that we have heard today also of your great salvation, of the everlasting joy that is to come for your ransomed and your redeemed people. We praise you and thank you for the work of Jesus who died for us. We pray that you will strengthen us, strengthen our drooping hands, Speak to our hearts of anxiety, to be firm and to fear not. And help us to live in this world, in your confidence, in your boldness, in your peace, to know how to live every day uh, according to your will, and uh, to uh, be a good witness for you, and in, and to bring you glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.